Today, I have the wonderful opportunity of talking to Dr. Arthur Bud Burnett, who is a professor of urology at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. He is a professor in urology and has published many papers on erectile dysfunction and is a world authority in the science of medicine of erectile dysfunction. He's contributed original discoveries of nitric oxide biochemical mechanism in erectile tissue. Nitric oxide is something we talk about all the time, right, as it relates to erectile function. And so Dr. Burnett was one of the original authors and thought leaders in the effects of nitric oxide on erectile function and has paved the way for clinical development of oral medications like Viagra for erectile dysfunction. He's also pioneered and developed several therapies to protect penile nerve function required for improved erectile function after radical prostatectomy. So we refer to Bud about everything across the spectrum. What causes erectile dysfunction? We talked about some of the research that he's done on nitric oxide as it relates to erectile dysfunction how exactly some of the drugs work, these PD-5 inhibitors like Viagra, Cialis, Levitra, Stendra, how do they work? And other just lifestyle and methods to keep erectile function and the importance of keeping erectile function going with a man as a man for as long as possible. So enjoy this podcast interview with Dr. Arthur Burnett. Welcome to the Dr. Geo Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Geo, where it is my intention to help you with your urological function and live better with age. Today, we have an interview with an expert guest from Johns Hopkins, Dr. Arthur Bud Burnett. And we're going to go first name, Bud. This is very, <laughs> very informal. Indeed. And we're going to talk about male sexual health. Bud, <laughs> you have been in the sexual health field for a long time. So let's start there. Tell me a little bit about your history. Are you from Maryland? Where are you from originally? Right. Well, yeah, there's a long history. Uh, I'm going to stay on the professional side yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah. Of sexual right, health. Exactly. <laughs> Please, thank you. <laughs> All of us have, have some history in that maybe. But uh, yes, I, I was originally uh, born and raised in Washington, D.C. and uh, ended up coming to uh, Maryland uh, for medical school after undergraduate. Uh, my education. And uh, that was about 40 years ago, Johns Hopkins, and uh, was uh, fortunate to, to uh, get complete medical school, uh, do my training, and then come on faculty at this institution. And so it's really been uh, something I didn't expect. Uh, I never, never predicted it, but that's uh, kind of how it evolved. So you went to medical school at Johns Hopkins. You did your residency there. Did you do a fellowship there as well? I did. I did. Uh, and uh, uh, just to cone down on that, I was an AUA scholar, this American Urologic Association scholar, to become a, to become a surgeon scientist. And I was able to spend two years after residency uh, with a special uh, award from uh, the organization, our, our urologic organiza organization, uh, to uh, do some specialized training. And I was able to uh, work with some other uh, scientists who were true scientists uh, and therefore so just start to my career. Uh, that combined being a surgeon and a scientist, which allowed me to bring various contributions to the field. Then you are in medical school. At what point did you say, all right, I think I want to do urology? Was it an immediate 
love for urology, the urological field, or did it take time? Well, I think it evolved a bit. My sense of what kind of surgeon, what kind of physician I want to be was to be a surgeon back uh, in uh, maybe college years and and just had aspirations of being a physician, but uh, just had a sense that a surgeon was kind of what just gave me some sense of direction. Uh, And then, uh, of course, urology was something that for many of us, we don't really no, I think until we get a little more exposed to it, it sounds like this nebulous urological urinary kind of thing. And, and like, well, you're just, just going to deal with the guy's, uh, you know, genital organ. What's it all about? But, uh, but, but as I got into medical school, I realized it was a really an exciting, uh, specialty uh, area. Uh, it really has a lot of purpose, particularly uh, for some disease states we deal with, including prostate cancer that disproportionately affects men of color. And I, and I realized that perhaps I can have some real impact uh, in, in this uh, uh, field where I think there's a lot of opportunity for discovery, a lot of opportunity for education, a lot of opportunity for advocacy, uh, health policy, and so forth. And I've been able to, I think, bring all of that throughout my career. So then you did your urology residency. And then at some point you said, uh, I like to microfocus a little bit more. I like to go into male sexual health and erectile dysfunction. What was that about? <laughs> well, you know what? There is a bit of a story there. You know, back when I was an undergraduate, yeah, I went to uh, Princeton in New Jersey, uh, and there's a requirement to do a thesis. Mm. And now uh, many undergraduate uh, institutions involve thesis activities, uh, some electively, but at, at Princeton, it was a requirement. And I was a biology major. Uh, had an interest there in, in studying the social and sexual behaviors of uh, the golden hamster, Mesochrysetus auratus. And and then I was doing some uh, interesting studies where I was localizing uh, uh, the areas within the brain of the female hamster that responded to hormones, and it required specialized almost uh, brain surgery in, in the hamster to, to, to really figure some of this out along with hormones and other chemicals of the body. And I just kind of knew that, you know, I have an inkling here toward understanding mechanisms. I have an interest in understanding how our basic biology of function is all about. And, and, uh, and my, my wife would even say, that, that's kind of where you got to start with it, didn't you? <laughs> <Something else started. laughs> right, exactly. Right. Yeah, but, but, but that kind of drew me into the field thinking that I'm interested in, in things that have to do with uh, messaging of chemicals in the body uh, and uh, sexual function. As I went through uh, urology training, I can tell you what, what really got me going was the realization uh, midway through my training that Back in the mid-1980s, we had really very little understanding about how a, a man's biology, that is, his sexual organs work and how things work in that regard. And, and, and in fact, we managed this condition called erectile dysfunction. Uh, management at that time was very basic. It was all about just maybe some herbal supplements, maybe a, a kind of a, a primitive kind of a split put with it. Yohim Bay. <laughs> That's right. Right. Yohim Bay was was popular. Something like that, Yohim B. Something like that. And I, you know, and I, and I remember writing that prescription thousands of times, you know. <laughs> but and then so I got turned on to it. <laughs> was the diagnosis erectile dysfunction in the mid 80s? What's the history there? Because if my memory serves me well, you know, the actual, where there was an actual ICD-9 code for erectile dysfunction. Was there such a thing in the mid-80s, and was it called erectile, or was it impotence? Yeah, well, that's just, that's the key thing. I, th- I think we just all 
got, I think, a little more oriented to the to what was going on there. I mean, it was, really, this whole area was mystifying even to medical professionals back in the 80s, and maybe still is yeah. uh, <laughs> to some extent. A L- little bit less so, but yeah. <laughs> but, but, but then on top of that, it was a taboo subject that nobody yeah. really wanted to, to give a lot of attention to it. And, and management back then was very, I think, uh, primitive. Uh, we use the word impotence. Uh, the word erectile dysfunction was coined back in the 90s, so so about a decade after that time with some consensus meetings. And we realized that impotence had such a negative tone to it, it kind of made a man sound inferior and weak and this and that. And it wasn't really that precise about what was going on with the man's sexual function. We've learned a lot more over time that men can be as complex as women with regard to their sexual functioning. And there's different different aspects of it that have to be looked at. And if we're talking specifically about how a man gets an, an erect penis to be functional for intercourse, that can be distinguished from his sexual interest or desire. That can be distinguished from orgasmic function and various other aspects of, of male sexual functioning. So I think we coined the term as specialists getting together back in the early 1990s saying, let's, let's use a better term. Let's be more precise if we're going to look about the science and the treatment of specifically erectile dysfunction and distinguish it from some of the other sexual dysfunctions. Did Pfizer play a role with that? So we know that at least the availability of Viagra was more or less in the um, late 1990s, 1998 or so, if I remember correctly. Were they involved in that process? Like, hey, before we, you know, by that point, they already knew, all right, this drug is not working too well for cardiovascular disease, but we may have something here for, for another purpose. Um, were they involved in that diagnosis? Because without a diagnosis, they can't really prescribe a drug. Were they involved in it? Well, they were. And, and I should uh, call out a good friend, Ray Rosen, uh, who I think had a critical role uh, in uh, helping uh, bring a better understanding to the field. Uh, specifically, he was the one who pioneered the questionnaire that we widely use now that can be uh, administered to a patient, a man, uh, and being very clear about his ability to perform with regard to the erection process of his sexual functioning. The SHIM score? That's right. So, so SHIM, Sexual Health Inventory for Men, that's an abbreviated version of the International Index of Erectile Function. Uh, he originated it and then used it uh, collaboratively with Pfizer some of the, for some of the trials uh, for the drug that led to Viagra. But you know what? There's more of a story to that old, old thing I can tell you, too, if you want to hear a Go little bit it. more about that. Go for that. it. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Go for it. You know, one thing you don't know about me, I, I, and the reason I'm a little bit of a history buff. So hopefully, for example, I have uh, Mo Aloff to come along, and we're going to talk about Hugh Hampton Young a little bit there, too, So, which is like the first prostate surgeon. So I'm a little bit of a history buff. So Johns Hopkins, as it relates to urology, that, it's all history. It's all history. So go, go right ahead. Go for the a little bit more history. <laughs> well, you know, you know, the, 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 what everybody you know, may find somewhat humorous, and many have have you know certainly understood perhaps some of the origins of Viagra as the uh, medication that evolved from uh, the studies that Pfizer, the the, the uh, pharmaceutical company, uh, was doing uh, in men who were uh, uh, being evaluated and treated for heart problems, so coronary artery disease, this condition we call angina, which is uh, a sensation of pain in the chest when, when your circulation through your blood vessels feeding the heart uh, sometimes are constricted or get blocked and this and that. And so they were studying a, a drug that they coined back then as UK-95 
92480. Now, of course, I know this field very well because I can tell you I know the nitric oxide story, which I can get into before that even preceded all of that. Mm. But the story so goes that with uh, they, there was the, the men who were involved in the clinical trial were using the medication, seeing whether it helped their chest pain, helped their cardiac function. In the midst of the trial, many of the patients were saying, you know what, I don't know about my heart, but you know what, my erections seem to be a whole lot better. <laughs> Well, all this occurred back in the, I, I, w- I would say back in the mid-1990s or early 1990s, maybe 92, 93, 94, somewhere in that uh, time frame. And then so it so turned out that indeed uh, we understood the science now because really the, 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 the Pfizer company uh, built this understanding on the science of nitric oxide discoveries that my laboratory and a few others had made. We understood the, the mechanism of penile erection, getting back to my you know excitement about the origins of my career, the science of how mechanisms work and things of that sort. And actually, that was the foundation from which they were able to understand that there's a chemical pathway in the penis that their drug actually could target and it somehow improved the function or direct the function in such a way that it helped the, the erection process. And, and there, there's some chemicals in the penis that are, that are somewhat more unique than the heart and elsewhere in the body, uh, the, the, the PDE5. Phosphodiesterase type 5, without making it sound too complicated, but that enzyme is so key to erectile function uh, in many different ways, and it's so heavily prevalent uh, uh, as a functional uh, chemical in the penile area. And once it was understood that their drug, which was an inhibitor of this enzyme, blocking its function, which served as a brakes uh, for erection, once you were able to kind of tap the brakes there or even stop, put the brakes on, you can help a man's erections. And that's where the story came about. All right, let's go a little deeper in that because I think our audience will enjoy it, and and I certainly do. PD five phosphodiesterase five is an enzyme. You did a lot of work on nitric oxide and nitric oxide, certainly as it relates to e- erections. And I do from a natural perspective. Ultimately, there are numerous things I try to do, but one is nitric oxide. How can we promote nitric oxide, right? Uh, either from arginine in my world, or there's some botanicals or uh, actually citrulline, which actually increases more arginine in the body than arginine itself. So I look at these things from a natural perspective. Nitric oxide, very important. Tell us a little bit about that history as it relates to sexual function, then how does uh, PD-5 um, plays a role here so that our audience understands exactly how these PD-5 inhibitors work, Viagra, Cialis, Levitra, and those drugs. Sure, sure. So just to, to go over that and not make it too complex, but, you know, science sometimes comes about through hard work. Sometimes it comes about through some serendipity and making observations and saying an observation really should lead us to make a discovery. And back when I was early in my science career as a surgeon scientist, I was in the research laboratory working with a collaborator, a neuroscientist, Solomon Snyder, and his laboratory group. They were looking at uh, these gaseous molecules now. The first one was nitric oxide. There was carbon monoxide and hydrogen sulfide. Things that just sound like bizarre gases. Actually, they work They work in our bodies. And this, this chemical called nitric oxide, also known as NO, uh, capital N, capital O, uh, amazingly, uh, is a chemical in the body. It's distinguished from nitrous oxide, which is kind of laughing gas, using in the dentist chair or this or that. But, but this is one, nitric oxide, that uh, as chemistry goes in our bodies, is made amazingly uh, when there's a proper stimulus and, and, and it's not uh, and it's made in a different way than, than conventional neurotransmitters. And he was studying it in the brain. And I uh, decided to, to team up with him, had some interest, understanding uh, erection disorders, 
that uh, including sickle cell disease-related priapism, which is where I kind of got a clue to this, that had to do with abnormal hemoglobin metabolism, which is the basic proteins of the blood cells, and that nitric oxide had something to do with that, and the science was starting to emerge in that area, and I said, I think I need to study this in the penis. At, at first, were you thinking nitric oxide? Is there much of this in the penis? And if so, what's the role? I'm, I'm sure you, you were starting at zero, right? <laughs> well, that's kind of so. But, but at the same time, I guess the, the point is, is if you, if, and one thing I've learned as a scientist over the years is don't dismiss an observation. If you, if you see something and you see it again with another experiment, there may be something to it. And that's when I said, you know, you know hey, Saul, uh, I want to study this more in the penis. I know you're working in the brain. Uh, I'm working on the maybe the little head here. <laughs> well, that is the second brain, isn't it? Or, or maybe the gut. I don't know. But go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> so he's working on the big head back in the late 80s, uh, early 1990s with, with some of uh, his graduate students and some really good scientists that were coming about at that time. But then I said, you know, I think there may be a story here in the penis. Uh, I know there's other workers in the field outside of my laboratory who are also looking at nitric oxide. We had some Nobel Prize winners that were looking at it in blood vessels and so forth, and they should be credited as well. But then I, you know, I wanted to get a little more of a crack at it at the penis, and um, and lo and behold, using some of the uh, scientific uh, experimental techniques of, of Saul Snyder's laboratory, I brought that to the penis. I was able, as a surgeon at that time, to create erections, believe it or not, in rats. <laughs> that mimicked the, the the pelvis of the human, and I was able to figure out how to make that happen and record it. All right, I, I need to pause you. For, no, <laughs> okay, I really want to get into the human side of things, but this is just way too fascinating. So you have rats, and I'm thinking there's no way you can even see the penis of a rat, <laughs> uh, even if you if you need a magnifying glass. And so then, how do you determine in a rat? How do you find a penis in a rat? And then how do you determine, yep, that it, you know, there's an erection there? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, again, um, you know, the, again, science is amazing. Uh, I think your audience may be entertained to know that, you know, the, the, for us scientists and, and me being a surgeon scientist, you know, we, we go about amazing studies of borrowing from animal species with proper ethical protocols uh, and, and, and approvals. But, but as all species reproduce, the, there are organs that, that are going to be similar across species, and rats do have genital organs as well. So what do you use? What tools do you use to, to see a baseline, your flaccid erection in a, in a rat, and then to notice that, yep, they, they got an erection? I, I'm just curious to what that process looks like. Well, you know what, you know, you're asking, so I'm going I'm to go, go deeper on it then. Uh, so the amazing thing is we can actually measure erection responses in rats as well as humans with sophisticated technologies, we can use uh, various kind of imaging techniques. We can you know, put we can put tiny needles at the base of a penis and measure the pressures in the penis, and 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 these correlate with the blood flow getting in the penis, the erection response, and so we can actually do all of that. And I was able to actually figure this out at the rat level. Believe it or not, subsequently I did it at the mouse level, where we went on and did more mouse studies with specific genetic transformation of the mice, and that even provided more. Uh, 
groundbreaking discovery about the nitric oxide pathways in the penis. But but uh, I was able to use special agents that uh, facilitated and inhibited the nitric oxide uh, pathway of production and showed that this directly was responsible for the erection response. And that led to a science article that I wrote back in 1992, a huge article that uh, got worldwide attention, major scientific journal called Science that the urologists probably don't even know about, <laughs> but, uh, the, but the worldwide scientific community knows about it. And that was a foundation for understanding the chemical mechanism now uh, by which uh, Pfizer said, wait, wait a second, wait a second. The Burnett Laboratory and some other laboratories have figured out uh, the mechanism of penile erection. Now we know how this enzyme, phosphodesterase type 5 inhibitor, doesn't really have much of a role in the heart as much, really. It really has such a signal in the penis because the pathway here is driven by nitric oxide. It's, 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 uh, uh, it's, it has an inhibition or breaks on it by PDE5. And if, and if we have a chemical uh, agent here, a drug that can just temporarily suspend the breaks, then we can help the erection process. And so our science and the, uh, and the, some of the serendipity of my work and some of the science that was going on, almost uh, serendipity of what was going on in the Pfizer clinical trials, uh, brought about these new agents uh, that were that became Viagra, that became Cialis, that became all of these special agents that treat erectile dysfunction. So the timing could not be any better in terms of what these pharmaceutical labs were doing and the kind of work you were doing with nitric oxide. It just so happens that it all worked out around the same time. It kind of did, kind of did. But, you know, that's the amazing thing about science. And we all teach each other. We all borrow observations that come about here and there. And that's when we have almost had the new sexual uh, revolution, if you will, back in the 90s. With Bob Dole? <laughs> well, yeah, actually, <laughs> Bob Dole did call me, believe it or not. That's another story. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, but, but, the, but the truth of the matter is that's when we all accepted that there is science to erections and we can help uh, men be functional. We can help couples be functional. All right. So we have this nitric oxide and what it does is it dilates, it opens up blood vessels and you just can correct me wherever I'm wrong, whenever you want. It opens up blood vessels. So now there's more blood flow that goes in this enzyme PDE5. So phosphodiesterase, uh, so anything that ends with ACE is typically an enzyme uh, that may be interesting to the audience. Phosphodiesterase inhibitor five, that stops the production of nitric oxide. So if when we take Viagra, we inhibit the production of PDE5 to allow more nitric oxide to be around around these blood vessels to sustain and keep an erection. Is that more or less how it works? That's basically the story. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So the pathway is kind of once it gets kind of stimulated and makes this gas and and then it gets released in such a way that it opens blood vessels, which is really the fundamental mechanism of penile erection. Blood vessels in the penis opening up, increasing the engorgement of the penis. But but there's breaks to this whole thing. Like many functions in our bodies, there's there's the yin and the yang, the the the, the, the turn on, the turn off. Uh, so the turn off switch is a PDE five, phosphodiesterase type five. If we can kind of suspend PDE five, which is what these inhibitors are all about then you can promote to the nitric oxide signaling. And as you talked about a moment ago, we also, over the years, and many other investigators are, are, have been working on what are the agents that precede nitric oxide, the L-arginine, the citrulline, L-citrulline. These are amino acids that are the building blocks for nitric oxide production. And, and conceivably, these may help also drive the pathway for erection. Uh, there's, there's, there's some you know, kind of nuances to some of this, but nonetheless, these sort of things 
may also be beneficial in ways to help uh, make the nitric oxide pathway work even better. But in my clinical practice, the guys that really struggle, so uh, um, very briefly, you know, in my clinical practice, I look for um, the overall health of the patient that is uh, that is contributing to their ED, right? So metabolic syndrome and things like that. That's the first thing. Get them, get them metabolically healthy. Second to that is, all right, how can we promote nitric oxide? And how can, you know, the guy who's coming in typically says, look, all right, I love the health part, but, you know, I have a date tomorrow. Like, what do I do? I don't want to take um, PD-5 inhibitors because of side effects. The patient who has a very low SHIMP score, so our audience knows that, you know, SHIMP is you know, from 1 to 25. The higher you are on that number, if you're 25, you're excellent sexually, and the lower you are, the more dysfunctional you are sexually. If you are moderate uh, um, or low, and we've ruled out several things, when I give these patients, because I tell them, I said, look, a low-dose PD-5 inhibitor will, is unlikely to cause the side effects of flushing of the face or you know blindness, blindness, things that you read on the internet, or lower back pain as it relates to Cialis. Lower dosage, along with a dietary supplement that has citrulline, one of them that I use is XY Vigor, for example, formulation. It's unbelievably good, that combination. So now you have the citrulline and other things to support blood vessel health. You have something to support nitric oxide production. And now you have the Cialis at a low dose. No, I've never seen a, a maybe you have side effect from a five milligram Cialis. I've seen it at 20 milligrams, not at, not at five. It's amazing. It works incredibly well. Um, and I'll say one other thing, uh, and then we'll segue into, you know, the whole process of ED, um, because most people come to me and say, well, Dr. Gio, you're the natural, you know, you only do natural. Uh, I want to do your stuff. And I said, great. I, I'm an, I am now. I take a lot of supplements. I exercise. Very important. But when drugs work, they work. And if they have minimal side effects, Cialis, and, and I want to say Cialis to Dadalfil, because that's where a lot of research has been done with overall health, with prostate health with, you know, keep your blood pressure healthy and things like that. So, and so now that we know how the process works, nitric oxide, so we want to inhibit PD-5, not for too long, because we don't want priapism, which is uh, an erection that stays hard for too long over two hours, is it? Well, I forgot what the magic (laughs) number is before it becomes a heart attack (laughs) to the penis. Four hours, maybe. Four hours is kind of what we quote, yeah. Is there a difference between all the PD-5s inhibitors, so Tadalafil, Viagra, Levitra, some of these newer ones. I remember there were there was something you put in your mouth and kind of dissolves in your mouth. I forgot what that was called. I don't know if it got any ground. What's going on in that world of PD-5 inhibitors? What really work? Is one better than the other? How does it work? Yeah, well, to, to answer that question most directly, yeah, we do have uh, on the market uh, by regulatory approval uh, at four uh, drugs, uh, at least in the United States, that work as PD-5 inhibitors. Uh, the, the first one that came out was Sildenafil, originally UK-92-480, uh, as we talked about, and and, and, and and the trade name is Viagra. Uh, but there's others, okay? And there's there's Tadalafil, which is Cialis. There's Vardenafil, which is Levitra. There's Avanafil, uh, which is uh, which is uh, Stendra. And, and so all of these are uh, PD-5 inhibitors. They have... Uh, the similar efficacies, they work in a similar way, 
Uh, I kind of half jokingly tell my patients, well, there's Coca-Cola, there's Pepsi-Cola, there's RC-Cola. <laughs> and and what's, what does all that mean? Well, what it means is that you know, it's not like one is cola and rum or something. They're, 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 they, you know, they, they, they have slightly different formulations. They work in such a way that they have a similar kind of uh, inhibition of the brake mechanism, PD5, uh, but they have slightly different chemical structures. And therefore, they may have slightly different effects in different people's bodies. Uh, and our bodies all may be very different in terms of just uh, various ways in which we all have our bodies work. Very similar, but just slight differences here and there. So why does one person like Coca-Cola? Well, they like it because it tastes better than RC Cola. And somebody else says, I like Pepsi Cola. So that's why a couple different ones are on the market. And they have had uh, similar effects on helping the erection response. But there may actually be slight uh, uh, improve responses of patient to patient. So that's why they're out there. But Tadalafil is the one that's known to have a longer half-life in the body about, you know, the week, the weekend uh, PD-5 inhibitor, right? You take it Friday, you don't need to take it for a couple of days and you're good, right? Well, that's it. So that's, uh, that's where I left that, that kind of uh, opening that to consider that there are some slight differences. Uh, we do know that one distinction, for example, as stated, was to was to Dalafosialis. It's formulated in such a way that the body breaks it down much more slowly, uh, and it has a much longer duration of effect in the body. And uh, without getting into all these kinds of pharmacologic terms and this and that drug, you know, metabolism, if you will, terms that that's one drug that may have an appeal to a patient because of this different characteristic. And so again, that's another distinction where patients may say, "I'd like to take a drug that." I'd like to have sexual activity with uh, taking the drug like an hour before sexual activity, which all kind of encouraged to do, give or take some minutes, uh, depending on how your body responds. But I'd like to be able to say, can I respond again, you know, half a day later with another sexual uh, scenario? And that same drug may still be in your system. Others may say, I just want one that's going to happen, help me function and happen here within the next uh, two, four hours. And that's all I want. I'd like to see it just be in and out. And, and therefore, there's different uh, uh, chemical functions with another drug. So these things we can counsel patients about when they come into our offices. I like your idea. You mentioned about how uh, understanding these mechanisms, bringing herbal supplements, wonderful uh, you know, certainly uh, there is a scientific grounds for many of these. And if they uh, seem to have some benefit without uh, serious side effects, uh, that's okay. As long as they don't have serious side effects. And that's key about some of these supplements. We got to be careful just about them in general, just so that we know what's in them and, and getting recommendations from experts like you on these kind of things. Uh, Dr. Gio, that's, that's great. Yeah. Thank you. So look, the problems with botanicals and herbals is when they're contaminated, when they're not from a good source and things like that, because though there is regulation, and I have a, a podcast with an expert on manufacturing of supplements, um, they, it is regulated. It's not when people say, well, supplements are not regulated. What they're saying is it's not regulated like pharmaceuticals, but it is regulated. regulated. So sometimes there's contamination. There's things, what's in the label that's not always what's in the bottle and things like that. It could be a problem. And certainly the right type and the right combination can be very helpful. The, the amount of science will, they'll, will never be robust, uh, bud, um, with botanicals is actually really better than ever before. When I say robust, uh, you know, of course, I'm talking about these large randomized trials that are sometimes too expensive for pharmaceuticals, nonetheless, for a, a, an herbal company. Um, but that said, there is a good amount of basic science and vivo science and even human uh, trials as it relates to some of these botanicals. So moving forward, your book, The Manhood Rx, great book. You kind of break it down as to 
what's going on in men that are having sexual problems. Uh, you go into Peroni's disease, which we won't talk about because that's that, that's a whole segment uh, within itself. Let's reverse engineer this for a second. I always say, you know, the penis is a barometer to a man's health. So yes, there's a quality of life aspect, right? Where, you know, you want to be sexually active. But beyond that, in my opinion, is if you're not, if you don't have an erection within three months, six months, red flags, what else is happening? Is there a cardiovascular disease, diabetes, you know, coming about? What's happening? Guy comes in, when is it I guess the first question is this, uh, and I'm also seeing a lot of young guys with ED. I've never seen that before. I was like 30, 28 years old. That's unbelievable. Because I was ready to go to say, oh, well, this is older guy coming in, but we see a lot of young guys now. So what's happening? And I know it's different for different ages and stages, but what's happening? Why? There's lack of blood. What's happening when they're, uh, you know, when when they come in and say, "Yep, I, I haven't." And when is it a problem in your head? Of course, in any one scenario, any guy may say, "You know, I, I, I tried last week and it didn't work." That I think that's pretty normal for many reasons, psychological. But when that happens continuously, or they try to masturbate, they don't get an erection, or they don't wake up with wake up with one. What's happening? And and when is it something that um, should cause red flags to go up? Is all right? I need to check this out. Well, you touched on you know a number of important uh, points there, and uh, you know I'll, I'll I'll echo your thoughts because you're spot on. I mean, we need we need to recognize that uh, uh, a man's ability to achieve an erection is not just something that's entirely recreational. It, it is a it really a, a a signal of how you are doing in your health. The the the, the way the penis works is a, is a uh, aggregate of blood vessel function, nerve function, hormone function, and believe it or not, as men. And as women, on the female side, uh, sexual responses is a mind and body response. So, so certainly how your psyche and how you're doing what on that level also contributes to it. So you can see that if your erections are working, that generally tells us everything's kind of you know, in, in tune. Uh, if, if something's uh, uh, problematic in any of these uh, systems of the body, the hormone system, the blood vessel system, the nerve system, even the, even the mental and uh, mental health system, of the body, that may be a signal that the kind of almost kind of converges at the penis. And if you can't get an erection, something may be going on that ought to alert concern. And, and then, yes, if it's consistent, we have used definitions like sustainably loss of erections after attempts for the three months or something of that sort. Uh, let that be a signal to, to say, you know what, uh, th- let's not just either ignore it. So let's not just don't think it means anything. It may be a true indicator that, uh, you're having trouble with your erections. And there are many factors across age ranges, across disease states. Uh, commonly in the United States, we are seeing health ad- adversity uh, from hypertension to metabolic syndrome, diabetes, obesity, lack of fitness, and all these things, cigarette smoking, uh, and all these things. And some may affect even young men, although young men, we don't see these diseases quite as commonly, but there may be a, a level of performance anxiety, but there may still be some 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 changes in that in that younger man's uh, blood vessel function, and maybe his first warning sign is, "Hey, uh, my erections aren't working right." Uh, you're seeing a specialist like you or me, and we want him then to redirect them to make sure he gets a good uh, heart healthy uh, um, checkup, that sort of thing. Cannabis, 
What, what's your opinion on cannabis? And I think that we can go down a rabbit hole with anything, and that's one of them because it could be an edible, it could be, but let's just say smoking, those that smoke weed, what, what's your findings with smoking marijuana and uh, erectile dysfunction? Yeah, I think that's a very interesting story. Believe it or not, there are uh, what we call cannabinoid receptors, a fancy word to say that, in the brain that, that may regulate the sexual uh, arousal uh, to, to get erections, sexual desire in general. Uh, we're still figuring out a lot of these mechanisms, trying to figure out all the chemical functions in the brain are very hard to get at. Uh, I think that our, our general observations are that uh, uh, cannabis uh, could be uh, beneficial uh, to a certain extent, uh, but much like anything in life, anything that is excessive may be problematic. <laughs> it's like alcohol, right? We, we've all been in a certain scenario where, you know, probably if you have a few drinks, at least it calms you down. And if this is a new scenario where you're interacting, you, you're able to engage better. But if you have too much alcohol, then you're going to, you know, you're going to be unable to function sexually. So it's the, it's, it's the dosage of all these things that probably matter, right? Sure. And then, and sometimes just the, the effect of it's uh, uh, chronic, uh, fancy word for saying, but just, you know, repeatedly doing something that's, uh, you know, an athlete is doing something way too much and those joints are getting beat up. Well, that, that same sort of analogy could be said that you, you, you could be harming something that's being excessively used. Right. All right. You said something before that is actually, I think, very interesting as it relates to Erectile dysfunction. Why is this happening? There's three things that are important to get an erection, right? There's the the nerve function from the brain to the penis. There is the blood flow. You need good blood flow. So then you need good blood vessels and healthy blood vessels. And you need, it's hormonal also. In your book, you talk about it's not always testosterone. Um, tell us about that because a lot of guys with ED, they're going right to the TRT clinic and they're saying, look, load me up because I'm having ED. And that may or may not be the cause of the situation. So let's start with that. What's the hormonal connection between um, uh, erections and, and testosterone or any other hormone? Sure, sure. Well, you, you know, I think that does deserve some uh, further um, uh, clarification. Uh, for the audience that, yes, there is the thought here that it's all a matter of just getting your male hormones right. And testosterone is the man, male hormone we, we hear about all the time. And, and I certainly see it in my clinic. I'm sure you do the same, that the patient uh, is thinking, well, you know, I, I may have uh, a lot of other bad conditions, uh, that diabetes is uncontrolled. I may have had a prior pelvic injury or surgery. Just give me some testosterone, t TRT, testosterone replacement therapy, and that's all I need. Well, the truth of the matter is testosterone does have a role in erections, maybe certainly keeping the uh, the blood vessels healthier and this and that, uh, but uh, it, it's, it's not quite as dominant a player in the erection response. It may have a bigger role uh, with regard to orienting a man towards sexual activity, his sexual drive, his sexual interest, maybe operating in, in, in aspects of the brain in terms of just how as men, we operate in being oriented toward uh, sexual functioning. But really to drive penile function specifically, there are more dominant players, including just how well your blood vessels are working, how well the nerves are supplying these blood vessels to help regulate how the blood, blood vessels react and so forth. And so if these other con uh, uh, aspects of the erection response really are out of whack, and you have health conditions that really dominate blood vessel damage and dominate nerve damage, 
uh, I, I have to tell patients that we need to get these other things, uh, you know, more in order and not just give testosterone. Uh, I think testosterone, again, should be a bigger player in the man's sexual libido than the erections per se. Yeah, look, we know that, um, as you said, testosterone does play a role in blood vessel health. And um, there's there's receptors around the penis for androgen receptors around the penis for tissue health, uh, perhaps for the uh, the muscle, the the carvanosum, perhaps as well, just keep that healthy. But you're, I think you're absolutely right. I don't know what you, I don't know if you've seen what I've seen, but I I see often. I think as it relates to testosterone, was optimal. I think we we still trying to figure that out because I see my this is I don't I don't think I've read a paper on that. I think it's completely anecdotal. What's most important is what's the percent free testosterone that you have? Way more important than total. Now, guys may say, wait, you need a lot of total to get enough free. I haven't seen that, but all the time anyway. I've seen guys with 700 total, very low free, less than 2% free. And I've seen guys with 300 with like 2.2, free percent. And at least in what I think I know is that you want at least two to three percent free in order to make it happen, and the only th- and the only way testosterone works if it's free. So I think there's a lot of w- a r- lot of room here still for us to figure this out um, in terms of just you know three hundred testosterone or th- look at nothing else, just to start with injections. Maybe not. You know, maybe not. Yeah. Well, I think you touched on a couple of important things. I mean, one 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 thing just to just say right up front is it's important to, to consider. Uh, that testosterone has a role. Uh, it may optimize blood vessel function, certainly has a role with sexual libido. But fundamentally, we need to understand what a man's testosterone level is. And and, and it, it really is uh, really no benefit to, to get excessive amount of testosterone in men. That doesn't help any of these functions. And so getting a blood test is key. Now, among these blood tests are the total and the free and this and that. And these are complicated nuances that uh, that, that some of the audience may understand, but what you're getting at is that we know that uh, is the the portion of the testosterone that is is not bound to other proteins uh, and in the circulation that can really have effects uh, to stimulate different organs and receptors and and even the brain and and depending upon uh, various other protein levels, the free level, which is not bound to proteins and stuck in such a way that it doesn't really do anything is what's key. And we got to understand more about uh, some of these nuances. All right. That's the hormonal aspect. Tell us about the neur- uh, neural aspect or the nerve function aspect. We know that, yeah, of course, if you have, let's say, multiple sclerosis and certain Parkinson's even, there's anything that stimulates a nervous system that's going to cause problems. What what are the things that cause uh, a nerve problems? Is it is the stress component, I, I'm assuming, is also part of that? So, you know, central nervous system to the brain, if there's a lot of stress, then the nerves are not functioning correctly. What, what's going on there that you would say in a normal circumstance? Let's say no, no nerve disease mm-hmm. patient comes in and they say, yeah, this might be a nerve problem. How do you diagnose that? And, and w- what are the type of things that are related? Yeah, yeah, very, very, a lot of complexity in that area of discussion as well. You know, we, we know that there's certain 
the nerve conditions really are unquestionably going to affect the man's erections, the spinal cord injury, uh, multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's, even pelvic surgery, such as radical prostatectomy, prostate cancer surgery, where the nerves that kind of course deep in the pelvis around surrounding the prostate, getting to the root of the penis, uh, these nerves can be traumatized. So anything that damages the nerves, and again, the nerves are what are key to make the blood vessels react. Credit to Dr. Walsh from your institution for I believe, discovering, at least that's the paper that I read, uh, the, the nerve bundle during a prostatectomy, right? Absolutely, absolutely. So so all of that is, uh, you know, you see how you know, that, that has to do with how the blood vessels getting to the root, root of the penis inside the pelvis allow erections to occur. But you, one thing that you touched on here I think is very, very interesting. You know, you know, we, we, we you know, use this word psychogenic uh, to, to, to kind of distinguish it from organic, which is kind of another term for physical aspects of functioning. And within the physical category, we can line up all these things, the blood vessel disease, vasculogenic, uh, if it's hormonal, endocrinogenic, if it's, if, it's, if it's neurological, we call it neurogenic. So those are common conditions, but psychogenic has been this mystifying kind of term, particularly for young guys, and there may actually be some nerve aspects to it having to do with the nerve regulation, neurotransmitters, neural pathways, but that is nerves that course to the throughout the brain and the spinal cord, down through the pelvis into the penis. And we still don't have all the answers to that. So the bottom line is is we, we shouldn't be just too quick to say, you know, if, if we don't have an obvious disease state, uh, you, it must be psychogenic. It must be something crazy about you. Something. No, no we, we accept the fact that maybe there's just some mysteries about how one body's, uh, one person's body's chemical functioning distinguishes from another and we still need to figure out some of these maybe true physical pathways that involve nerves that we don't fully understand now as far as diagnosing it uh, the answer is is that um, you know the, the way we manage it is is, is to, erectile dysfunction specifically is oftentimes not to do too extensive diagnostic studies it can be not necessarily well definitive just in our current era of medicine uh, and they may not necessarily change some of the uh, treatments that we can offer at least first line. So, so for the audience, I would say that yes, getting a proper medical checkup is always perhaps the most fundamental aspect of diagnostic health and workup and so forth. If you're having erectile dysfunction, but do we need to pin down exactly exactly what neurotransmitters, neural pathways, et cetera, et cetera? Well, that's more of a research endeavor for us to continue to work on, and maybe in time we'll figure out new pills that may target specific pathways. But here and now, and we, we may get into this, uh, Dr. Gio, Gio as, as to how we go about treatment, but our management is is is, is actually somewhat more um, simplified, somewhat more uh, direct about uh, where we are with what we can offer at the moment. Got it. Sure. But with blood flow, however, that you do do certain things. You do an ultrasound of the penis to see how the blood is flowing. Uh, is that something that's still common practice or uh, uh, not as much? Well, it is. And, and so uh, to, to, to cone down a little bit more, yeah, there are some diagnostic tests that we'll do, maybe not as extensively as we done had done 30 years ago, now that we have the emergence of, of, of reversible and simple treatments like oral medications, uh, so that's that's partly dictated where we are right now in the field. That now that we have simpler interventions, and where we were in the past, we were just trying to determine whether somebody had something serious enough to warrant a surgery, such as putting a penile prosthesis or a splint within the penis. Now 
Uh, we we reserve our diagnostic tests just for complex presentations, maybe the more severe disorder, maybe somebody that we really are not going to treat more conservatively with herbal supplements or oral medications, what have you. And the study that's often referred to is called penile ultrasound testing. And I still do that in my clinic, again, selectively, uh, where uh, we evaluate for blood flow functioning in the penis. And that may give us clues as to whether something is wrong in terms of the vascular system, the blood flow system. If everything seems to be intact with that kind of study, then we may have to conclude uh, by almost diagnosis of exclusion, as we say it, that there may be something uh, neurologic or some other kind of mechanism that's involved. Fantastic. We are close to the end here but thank you first of all thank you so much for taking time out on the weekend saturday morning you know we saw each other at one of our nyu conferences recently and i asked you know and you said yeah right away and we got to it right away and i i can't tell you how much you're a busy man you have a family you have you know you you just came out of i think i think you just got out of a, a church uh, scenario where you were teaching on health i believe and you're, yeah. you're church busy man and you and you agree to to come on and i appreciate that um the book is the manhood prescription which i think they people can find anywhere but oh absolutely it's available on amazon barnes and normal uh roman and littlefield is the publisher and you go directly to their website uh but it's out there and um i'm just delighted delighted to have produced it as a resource to to patients it's as easy to read for by by, by non-medical professionals, but even uh, medical professionals may pick it up and get some insight. So uh, I thought there was a need to do it, and I'm just delighted that we were able to produce it. Thank you. So any final thoughts as it relates to men's health and erectile and penile erections? No, my final thoughts are that, uh, you know, our sexual health is part of our general health, and we shouldn't mm-hmm. shy away from it. I think we should uh, acknowledge it. We shouldn't dismiss it. We, we, I think we realize how much it is important to us in terms of how we feel uh, with regard to our sexual abilities, our physical functioning, our relationships. Uh, and so I, I champion how we should uh, accept it and not just look at it as a taboo subject. So please be informed. Please, uh, if you have any kind of concern regarding your ability to perform sexually, there are medical professionals out there. Dr. Geo is a wonderful one, as an example, my, myself and others. Please uh, seek attention and let's address these things. And, and they're actually specialists. And, I mean, I think still a lot of people don't know. They think, oh, I'm going to the urologist. No, they're, they're spe- subspecialty in male sexual health, And but you're one of them. There's quite a few that are amazing as well. So uh, seek seek help and and. And get healthy. When in doubt, <laughs> when in doubt, just get healthy. Do healthier things, and magic will happen. Every if you're not sexually active, maybe one day you wake up and like, oh, I haven't seen an erection in the morning in a long time. Wow, look at this, right? Something like that. But thank you so much for your time. Thank you for coming on. Uh, we'll stay in touch, and uh, we'll put your book in our show notes. Thanks so much. My absolute pleasure. Thank you. for tuning in to this week's episode of the Dr. Geo podcast. You can watch all episodes of this podcast and much more by subscribing to my YouTube channel on youtube.com forward slash Geo Espinoza ND. If you love what you heard today, you can help by leaving a five-star review of the podcast on Apple and Spotify as each review helps us reach more men who are serious about improving their urological health 
and how to function better with age. And for the latest research and actionable takeaways in the world of men's health and integrative urology, sign up for my newsletter at drgeo.com. I'll see you next time. And now for a brief disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only, and we're not forming a doctor-patient relationship through this medium. The use of the information and all links associated with this podcast is at the listener's risk and is not to replace medical advice from a physician or a healthcare practitioner. Lastly, thoughts and opinions related to this podcast are my own and may not reflect the views of any institution or organization I'm associated with.